Hello, Nick's Report. This is Stephen Kelly. You might remember me. And I heard you guys were doing a show about back to school. Well, I had a little story I wanted to share with you that pretty much puts my uh, opinion of back to school in perspective. So last Friday, uh, I believe school starts this week, so a few days prior, I just got off work. It's about 2.30 at night or so. I get out of my car to witness the single worst fight I've ever seen. There's these uh, drunk people that perpetually are drinking across from me. And, uh, I mean, seriously, toddlers could have thrown down better than these two guys. Um, one of them starts walking away because I guess they're, them slapping each other on the back was pretty hard. And they start yelling at each other. Um, one of them all, all of a sudden decides he's going to win, and he culminates with something to the effect of, yeah, your mom has a, a male genitalia reference, keeping it cool for the kids. All i got to say is uh, stay classy, UCM. Boy, am I happy for when you guys leave again this winter. Good work as always, Nick's report, and figured I'd just share that with you. And welcome to our back-to-school edition of the Report Podcast, where we cover Unix and Overlook Pop Culture. Well, it's going to be kind of Overlook Pop Culture to a point that we look at this time, and then we'll do a kind of a unique episode next week, but uh, I'm Thomas. I'm Mitchell Brown. And I'm Zach Dotson. Um, the clip that you heard, uh, just to let you know, good news, our feedback line is working Perfectly. So if you ever want to leave feedback, just call 660-474-0345. Just leave a voicemail, and you very well could be on the next episode. So hooray for that. Um, honestly, what do you guys think of, of <laughs> what you uh, heard? I think it's, it's typical. It's typical of this area. I live right... Uh... I'm in close proximity to Pine Street, so I can set, even with not looking at the clock, I can like set my mental watch when the bars are out based on <laughs> a cacophony of hooting and hollering and th- that I hear outside. Yeah, and it, uh, last night I was uh, hanging out with a couple of friends, it was about 10 o'clock or so, and then um, I, I just made a remark about how even for the uh, move-in Sunday, it seems pretty darn quiet in Warrensburg. And then within about 20 seconds, I hear police sirens. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, and no matter how hard the city council tries to destroy the reputation of this being a party town, they're not succeeding. If it's they can't fight back the wave. That dam is going to break, or that dam breaks every late August. And the thing is, they, they tried to do this whole um, noise ordinance on Pine Street. And what? What's that? What does that include? A noise ordinance? 
It was specifically targeted towards Pine Street where noise could not be louder than a certain decibel, which was the equivalent of a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> so, instead, really? so instead, people just moved live outdoor concerts out to like Blindburn Park instead. So, And you have a lot more private parties at people's houses, which really doesn't solve the binging problem in the town. It just moves it somewhere else. Yep. So, um, I remember back in high school when, you know, college was advertised as the way to go if you want that high-paying career or you want want to really feel like you accomplished something in life, get your degree, right? Mm -hmm. I'm I'm saying this is the first immediate family member who has a Bachelor of Science in History. I have a Bachelor of Science degree. Mm -hmm. Are you the first in your family or just the first in that discipline in your family? Um, The first in the immediate family. Uh You have a bachelor's. My dad has an associate's in the associate's character. He's working towards an associate's. I cannot remember off the top of my head. Uh, My sister got close to graduating but got burnt out on college. And Mm -hmm. And with some people, and by the way, for those who want to argue that the new UCM rule regarding new students have to stay in the dorm for two years because it will help their grades, let, let me dash that little myth <laughs> right now. My sister moved myth. into the dorms. Who would be dumb enough to believe that anyway? Well, no, there, there's, there's quite a bit, uh, quite a bit of traction that UCM policies and procedures are are getting favorable traction by students, uh, professors, and administrators alike all touting the new benefits of um, the new policies and procedures we're about to implement, one of them being that incoming freshmen have to be uh, have to be in the dorms for the first two years of their of their college experience. Well I think I think if anybody knows about like Newspeak or like the Ministry of Truth in nineteen eighty four, that's sort of what I think of. If you have critical reasoning skills, you can see we want you if you're in the dorms for two years straight, that'll increase your your GPA. Well, that's an individual intrinsic trait. That's what that is, that is about. That is about more pe- dorm living, more expensive, more money to the school. So, uh, it's, so somebody's GPA and what somebody gets, that's an intrinsic, internal, individual quality. If somebody is dedicated to making good grades and being involved academically, it doesn't matter if they're living on campus or off campus. Right, and the, the, the basis of the argument is that right, if, if students are living in the dorms, they're surrounded by people who may be of their same major, they're surrounded by people who can help them, they're close to their classes, they can They're get, surrounded by people coming in drunk at 1.45 in the morning, right on the walls, <laughs> and that's somehow going to help do, help the school with retention and help students with their GPA. Do, 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 do. Um, the, uh, for, for those who are unfamiliar with um, using policy procedures, we've already mentioned the uh, first two years uh, rule. Um, with that, there are some implications. Students who live on campus, I believe, are at least in their first year, required to have a meal plan, and then they can opt into a meal plan um, in their later years. But, I mean, that's still, if they're living on campus and they see that it is a little bit more convenient to have meal plans and stuff like that, that's more money going to the school. That's eventually more money coming out of the pockets of UCM students and their families. 
And that's more money that UCM can use, hopefully, to put back to some of the you know, and academic I, I, I would have more respect if, if UCM as an entity or whatever PR jerk wrote that and sent out that official line, if they would be just like, listen, we want more of your money. I'm more of your parents' <laughs> money, and this is why they're implementing this, as opposed to, this is to help students finish in four years and help UCM's retention. This is to help you. No, it's to line your pockets. I have, I mean, I have no problem with capitalism. I, I'm pro-capitalism. I'm not one of those Randian, Ayn Rand, Rand worshipping objectivists. But if somebody, one of those crazy neo-Marxists, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not flying with either wing. But if if somebody was to just a representative from UCM was to state that on record, I'd be like, I have more respect for you because you're being honest. And. And the whole idea that this is going to help some of these grades. Well, let me to include that myth right now. My sister, my own sister, moved into the dorms. Uh, you know, it, she was getting to that age where she just, she wanted to be on her own for a while. That's understandable. It still didn't change the fact that she was getting burnt out on school and she still had issues performing in classes. Mm-hmm. So that right there just basically implodes that idea immediately. Another thing that goes along with that whole measure whenever it was passed is, is the, it could, they bill it or it's, uh, it's conveyed as a help, but it could be a hindrance with 15 to finish. Well, students, if they, you're, take, you're going for your bachelor's, you should be able to get a four-year degree, four degree in four years. And you can do that faster if you're required to take 15 credit hours a semester. And what about if somebody is not acclimated to co- college courses left, and they're obligated to take 15 as opposed to 12? That could sink the battleship. Right. Right and, from the get-go. And yeah, what Mitchell's alluding to is that you know students, if they're if they're pressured to to be more academically involved or even involved in student organizations on campus as a part of enriching their first two years of college experience, uh, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense if they're already pressed on time trying to get acclimated into college, now pressuring them with 15 credit hours in their first semester. That seems like a recipe for failure, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can't Possibly. Speak from, Not I can't everybody speak from direct experience. Carry that load. Right. I, I don't ex- uh, speak from direct experience. I mean, I took 15 to 18 credit hours for most of my semesters in my undergraduate career. But I can say this. In the semesters in which I was on campus, academically speaking, I did far worse than when I moved off campus. Mm-hmm. And there's just and there's a lot of various reasons behind that. Sometimes it's just sheer procrastination. Most of the time, though, it's because your social environment is constantly around you. Mm-hmm. You one of the one of the social uh, events that happens is you go to the uh, dining halls with your friends. Because you all have your unlimited meal plans, mm-hmm. and you just go hang out for for forty minutes to an hour mm-hmm. or whatever. And um, but I mean, other things uh, that UCM is doing, they're trying to uh, create more of kind of like an all-encompassing um, student atmosphere. Try to make UCM as um, as self-contained as possible. Do you so think that's that, that? Do you think that's true as far as creating an all by all-encompassing? Do you mean inclusive? I, I mean, I mean, all encompassing as in whatever UCM students want to do activity wise, mm-hmm. that they're trying to create those opportunities on campus through increasing funds for like intramural sports, 
um, creating that new movie theater on campus. They're trying to, I guess, widen the ex- amount of experiences that UCM can have. Inclusivity, on the other hand, is an entirely different issue. And we'll get, probably get into that here later on in the episode. It, it, it reminds me of uh, how uh, a guy named Art, who runs uh, Java Junction, mm-hmm. he did not take kindly to the fact that you know, UCM decided to throw another coffee shop onto campus, and he's like, after years and years of supporting this campus, this is what they do to me. I'm done with. I'm done with them. Uh huh. I mean, he he has every right to feel that way. But on the same token, UCM had every right to to bring in another uh, coffee shop on their premises. They had every right to do that. Right. I mean, they're they're a public institution. I mean, that's, they that's, can make that's decisions the, for themselves. That's the free market. That that's competition. If he's going to be upset about that, then uh, he he should or could be upset about every other coffee shop in town. Right. Um, one thing that I want to, uh, that I kind of wanted to talk about, uh, given the fact that, um, according to, um, the Missouri Department of Education and the United States Department of Education, um, statistics for Missouri, specifically for UCM, shows that attendance has increased in the last five years, close to about 10%. That's actually faster than the statistical average for most public institutions in the state of Missouri. Let me interrupt before you segue on to the other part of what you have. What do you think accounts for that rapid increase? Um, there are several other, there are several issues, uh, or I guess several reasons. One is the, in my opinion, the lowering of academic standards to allow more students to come in, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, several years ago, UCM, and we talked about this on previous episodes, uh, UCM was trying to plug, I think it was a, it's a 10 to $12 million deficit as a result of, um, Budget constraints. What year was this? Um, I believe this, this would have been probably my, I think it was my senior year in my undergrad, so this would have been back in uh, 2010, 2011, I believe. Um, now, that, those funds had to be accounted for. They have to, you have to have those funds for uh, your operations to go. And so, from my speaking with, uh, with some admin- lower level administrators, with professors, people in the faculty senate, They've all said, or at least alluded to, uh, an administrating lowering of academic standards to allow more students to come in. Um, uh, for the purposes of protecting our identity, I won't mention them on air. Right. But um, there's, there, they at least, most of them have told me that instead of, let's say, like a 24, 25 ACT, it's now like a 21. And that, that I mean, it, it's, it's stuff like that. That allows for UCM to bring in more students and ultimately offset um, some of the red ink that is in their budgets. On a, on a macro level, how do you think that shift affects UCM? Because I mean, I'm not I wasn't wasn't privy to information formal, but I see within just student behavior and and the types of students that are found at UCM, I see that shift. Right and. To be clear, I, I support students who um, come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds if they have the grades to get into a public institution. I think most I think most people, if they have the financial resources available to them, vis-a-vis uh, Pell grants and other um, state and federal um, funding options for them, I think that they should deserve a right to at least try their hand at college. Um, 
But what's happening is that we're bringing these students in and uh, who are lower level performing students, and I'm only talking about the lower level performing students, not the ones with different, uh, with controlling for socioeconomic status. Right. Um, what happens is that when these students flood departments, there's kind of a lowered expectation of the amount and quality of scholarly material that they should be producing. Instead of requiring a class now to write three or four papers in a semester and then being high quality papers and being the majority of a student's grade, now we're adjusting our uh, curricula to say, as long as you come to class, you'll receive 10% of your grade, right? Mm -hmm. Now, 200 points or so of, uh, I've been in classes where uh, like 100 points are for just attendance, for you being just a heartbeat in a classroom. And to me, that's not indicative of being an academic, which is what going to college is supposed to be about. It's supposed to at least prepare you either for a career or at least like for a career outside of academia or a career inside academia, both of which require you to be an engaged person. And just showing up to class and acting like you're taking notes and you have your phone under your desk and you're Facebooking, that, that's not being an engaged student at all. I think you would be, and myself, maybe everybody in this room, would be in what's possibly either nationally or locally at UCM becoming a minority opinion. Right, and I most people, I think, a large portion of students, they don't care about being an, an engaged learner or being an academic. Right, and some of the groups that I've, uh, student organizations that I've seen pop up around UCM and even off campus, <clears throat> there have been fewer and fewer academically um, focused groups at UCM uh, coming into fruition. In fact, what I see more and more are like the likes of Spotlight, which... For our listeners who are unfamiliar with... Like, Don't you want to stand like, in line for pizza for four hours? Well, we have, we have all these social events on campus, and don't get me wrong, you know, some sometimes you need a break from your academics in order to enjoy a social but event, but... it shouldn't but, dominate. Right, it shouldn't dominate a campus experience. And um, even now in my uh, graduate years, what I'm seeing is, you know, more and more groups focused on having social events for students of all... Um, walks of life instead of trying to create organizations or efforts to promote academia within the ranks of departments. Sometimes, some I agree, and some I don't. I don't think that those necessarily even recreational groups are as uh, as diverse as you allude that they are. But sometimes when I walk through the union, it feels like I'm walking through a daycare. Right, and there's. <laughs> There's definitely like a different social dynamic, to be sure. When you're bringing in students who are not academically focused and uh, more and more are concentrated um, on social affairs, then if, if campus is just supposed to be a fun atmosphere that's detached from academia, then you're going to absolutely get that. You're mm -hmm. going, yeah, people are going to be really loud. People are going to be um, uh, dumb. <laughs> Dumb, doing, yeah. doing dumb things. People who are in their early 20s who are acting like children or like adolescents. I see it. I mean, it's part of the reason why I can honestly state that I don't like the social environment at UCM. The number of people who I associate with or feel any connection with, it, it's, a, it's a minute number. 
minus the percentage of people that I uh, like being around at UC. And uh, Mitchell has, you know, talked about the social dynamic, and I've kind of hinted at the academic dynamic. I'm not. We are not saying that everything at UCM is kind of just whitewashed in terms of detaching academia from public institutions altogether. That's that's not our argument. Our argument is that is that what is happening at UCM and other institutions across the United States is that academia, the true nature of academia at public institutions, is being crowded out by the need to bring in more students to offset the economic uh, disparities that the university has. Now, there are some projects that are happening at UCM and other institutions in Missouri. Um, there have been several departments at UCM that have scholarshiped or at least gave financial resources to graduate students so they can attend conferences. The Communication Sociology, uh, Sociology Department is one of them that um, every year offers at least um, uh, some students the ability uh, to go to like, the National Communication Association's um, annual conference. And those are really good efforts, but those efforts are being crowded out at UCM and other institutions. Right, those represent a minority. If we look at a, at a bell, in a bell curve format, those are outliers. That's not that's not the great vast amount of the media. Right, and what we have in public education now, I believe, at least higher education, is that we have a lot of these students who are graduating with their degrees, their Bachelor of Arts, their Bachelor of Sciences, um, certifications in a myriad of other fields, and then when they get out into the workforce and they're competing up against candidates who uh, came from uh, schools that forced them to try to get published in their field, mm-hmm. or at least, you know, strongly advocated that they should, wink, wink, um, and they're going up against these candidates who have been published in their field, have attended conferences, these students just can't compete. They just can't compete at all. What happens is that now they're saddled with their student loan debt with no um, uh, uh, prospects for continued employment. And, I would say limited. Oh, yeah, severely limited. And now it creates kind of an economic strain on their local, uh, local state, and national communities. They have to uh, you know, be a Bachelor's of Arts student um, or a graduate with a Bachelor of Arts, and they're working, let's say, at McDonald's. And you know, some people some people choose that, but for the vast majority of people who receive their BAs, it's not at the at the beginning of their freshman year they say, "I want to get my bachelor's so I can work I, at McDonald's for the next ten years." If that happened to me, I would be <laughs> contemplating surfer coup. Right. I mean, um, some of you will get that reference. Uh, and, and just to kind of briefly touch on, because you you all um, can, I will share this information with you on the next reports uh, website, both our fan page and probably our main page as well. But there are 37 million student borrowers in the United States as of right now. That's according to the Federal Reserve Board of New York. There's about $902 billion to $1 trillion in outstanding student loan debt. And the vast majority of students who attend college, 60% of them will take out or borrow annually to cover the costs associated with um, college. Now, federal loan money, for the most part, they are changing regulations on it, so that's becoming less and less... Um, Available to students, and so students. That's are, horrible. That's for evil Republicans who don't care about the poor. Do you don't care about poor people when you get behind that legislation? You're yeah. evil. And and more and more, these students are going to private lenders with exceedingly higher interest rates. And so when they get out of college, instead of paying, let's say, you know, five to ten percent 
APR. Uh, they are paying an upwards of 20 to 25%, yet they're still unemployed. So it's it's literally squeezing blood from a turnip at this point, if you've ever heard that reference. Yes, no, I never have, <laughs> but I mean... You can't squeeze blood from a turnip. You think just, that, I think that comes red. what it comes down to, I think that's an opportunity on the behalf of private lenders. You could say it's opportunistic, but I mean, it's an old type of, almost type of country type of euphemism and saying, if you want to dance, you have to pay the band. Right. And, um, you know, you can't fault the private lenders at all. They're offering a product, in this case financial resources, to students who need uh, those financial resources to pay for college. And, yes, there can be some more regulations on the banking industry. I'm sure none of us would probably say otherwise. But um, but what what is happening is that I think more and more students are getting themselves into situations that they just probably shouldn't. And that is attending a post-secondary uh, institution without the understanding that, yeah, it does come with a price. And, yeah, you have to find a job that is able to offset your expenses after college, including your student loan repayments. And one of the things that I remember coming up in my various wanderings on is something called the Tenant. Now, in theory, it sounds like a great idea, right? Basically, colleges that get more than 90% of the revenue from federal aid for two years will be eligible for federal aid in the future. Except the problem is, according, this is according to the Center for College Portability and Productivity, it causes colleges to try to raise tuition to make it possible because they can't they can't have any say so students for federal aid. That's for the federal government to decide at this point. And so you have this madness going, oh crud, more than ninety percent of our revenues coming from the federal government we need to up our revenues so that we don't Use the ability to have more students and everything else in between. And that's, I think that's part of the problem as well. It's, it's a never ending cycle unless you have certain institutions that decide, okay, we're not taking any federal aid. You're going to come, come, you pay, basically. I think if that was instituted, I mean, whether it should be or should not, but I think the repercussions of that. Is you would see uh, chunks of students like sliced off meat from a cow who wouldn't be there anymore. Some people might say right. that's good if you have mountain debt and you have a bunch of dumb dumb babies who can't compete and pay it back. Then it needs to be that slash and burn of a policy. That's something I'm on the fence on as far as if that policy. Should should be instituted, right? Because on but on, that would be the effect of getting rid of something. Like on that. the one hand, you know, students who don't have the economic means to enter college, but definitely have the grades, mm-hmm. will or the mental ability. Yeah, will fall into that category of just being lopped off. And then the students who do have the financial means, but probably don't have the grades. In um, some in some cases, in, in cases where that's right, combo. I'm talking about certain like colleges that could be maybe new ones that. You know, form and come together and decide, you know what, we're not going to take any federal financial aid whatsoever. If you want to attend our institution, 
you are going to pay for it, um, do you think such a thing would be possible, or do you think regulations are preventing? I I don't like I don't that. think it would be possible. I mean, we're I talking about the growing um, the growing amount of uh, expenses associated with going to college. It, they're only going to be increasing. We're we're bringing in more students, which means that they're going to have to either hire more professors in order to teach those students, or at least provide um, resources online so professors can manage multiple classes. Um, and those expenses are just going to keep increasing. And but, so outside of just increasing your standards uh, in order to get admitted into a college, I don't think you're going to have any amelioration of those issues that we're facing right now in public higher education. But if the 90-10 rule is potentially causing these expenses to increase because of that that whole vicious cycle of we have to raise prices or we lose federal aid for two years, what I'm asking is, can this thing be bypassed or or other regulations probably preventing this from happening in the first place? I think there's between what you describe as an alternative is completely viable. You're talking about uh, essentially a private institution. If it's strictly pay out of pocket only, you essentially have a, a private college. Well, I think I don't in the, in the immediate um, time frame. Let's say you know five ten years. Professors are still under contract, and those contracts are still reviewed, yes. They're reviewed, on average, about anywhere between two to three years, um, and departments can determine whether it's a professor. But until then, the contract still stands. If you increase your standards dramatically to um, either dissuade students from attending your college or get away from the 90-10 rule, and now, um, let's say... It, that 90-10 rule uh, allows students to go to college, then you're still going to have a financial maelstrom that is going to be affecting colleges. Now you have, you basically still have the same amount of expenses associated with maintaining professor tenure and the other resources available to students on campus, but now you have less students to pay for those resources. I'm not talking about like existing colleges. I'm talking about potentially... A new model. New institutions I got that. going out of the way to buy, similar to how some doctors, because they're tired of dealing with middlemen, decide to open their own private practice, not accept any insurance whatsoever, and discovering that they're able to charge less because they have less middlemen to deal with. They're also taking on fewer fewer patients, too, in order to um, manage the load. Um the, the stuff that I've read about about companies and institutions not accepting any outside financial resources, um, such as doctors, um, uh, doctor offices, as well as public institutions shifting over to a private model, they dramatically decrease the number of people that they're able to see um, because they're not getting those outside financial resources. And what happens is that people follow fall, fall into the kind of donut hole of um, oh, no. services. So, <laughs> well, is that necessarily a bad thing? If if you're seeing less people at once, you're able to spend more time with them. Theoretically, that's what we have 
at UCM, one of the things that's advertised is smaller class sizes, smaller class sizes. But as we see, does smaller class size alone lead to a sort of universal uh, enhanced performance? Uh, enhanced small, performance. Smaller class size, my rear end, if they're... If they're but that's one of the things that... The, if the selling points of UCM. If, right. Yeah, if they're increasing the amount... If they're growing as much as the statistics cited is growing, those classrooms are not going to remain small. Um, they're going to start getting bigger and bigger. Um, I and and I've kind of noticed it to a point, depending upon what department you have to be studying under. It's just I don't know. It, I mean, maybe if you're in later years, but in my freshman year. Um, there were plenty of students in my freshman courses and sophomore courses, especially if one of them was sociology. Boom, boom, you that. So, if you're having more students come in, it's going to get a little bit more crowded, and that, and that's that's assuming that most of them actually stay or don't transfer. Right, well, we're also assuming that the 90-10 rule actually allow, effectively allows students to attend college. I'm not really convinced of that argument. I haven't seen much evidence one way or another on the 90-10 rule and how it affects um, residual class sizes. Um, but what I, what I can say is that if, if students are able to attend college who otherwise wouldn't have the financial means to do so, uh, but they're performing, and we suddenly increased standards on one end or the other, then those students could very well not have the opportunity to attend college. And at least for me, that, that, that spells kind of a bit of a problem because then we lock systemic inequalities in place that disprivilege um, people from lower socioeconomic statuses to attain a college education and possibly um, increase their status in the economic, so, uh, socioeconomic ladder. Well... See, that, and there's another issue here, because the assumptions being made that if somebody has a college degree, they're going to elevate themselves on that social ladder, and that's not always the case. Um, let's keep in mind a couple of examples. Bill Gates did not complete college. He right. saw a business opportunity. Now, and, granted, and Steve Jobs and Russell Simmons. Mark Zuckerberg. Those people are... Those people are outliers. Those people are a minority. Those people are not typical. They're atypical. That's not the norm. Right. But, uh, in fact, but I do I do see what you're saying. There, there, there is a way, if you do not attend college, to climb your way up on the socioeconomic ladder. Yes, it can be done. We can keep making examples left and right so, to prove this argument. However, take a look around the United States in, in which uh, a country that, you know, about uh, over 95% of the income is controlled by the top 1% of the United States, you can easily see that that opportunity isn't available to the vast majority of people who are in the low socioeconomic um, uh, realms. And, and it won't be, or even people who are, who are in the middle class. I mean, all of those that we've named are outliers, and in some way or another are geniuses. Right, and, and let's not forget that the vast majority of the evidence on this question linking the pursuance of a bachelor's degree or the attaining of a bachelor's degree to future income the vast majority of organizations, ranging from the National Association 
uh, or I'm sorry, the National Center for Education Statistics, the U.S. Department of Education, Missouri Department of Education, all have said that if you attain a bachelor's degree, you're on average going to be making over 110% more over a course of your lifetime, more than people who do not have a bachelor's degree. I would degree. say with, how I would phrase it is having that bachelor's degree, it's a likelihood of socioeconomic mobility, but it's not a guarantee. Certainly. And obviously, after you get your bachelor's, you have to get a decently paying job. Um, you have to have discretionary income uh, in order to climb up the socioeconomic ladder. Um, but but I do know that, that there have been a lot of studies that have positively correlated the attainment of a bachelor's degree with future income earnings. But here is another problem with that statistic. Who is all included in that statistic? Because there are those who argue that certain certain um, well-to-do people are also included in that statistic, doesn't they? Sure. Statistic. Mm -hmm. um, there's also another issue at hand. It's something that is not comfortable to look at. It's kind of an elephant in the room, but he's looked at. It reminds me of, oh, I can't believe I'm even making a Disney reference, oh, but I'll do it anyway. I used to watch this little cartoon show, Aladdin, because that movie got so popular that they decided, oh, heck, we'll, we'll do a cartoon show on a regular basis. Kids will watch it and love it. And Iago, the parrot, is temporarily granted the genie's powers. What does he do? He makes everybody rich. Well, it sounds great until the problem becomes apparent. Since everybody has money, money doesn't mean anything anymore, and everybody's starving because the little monkey that touched all the stuff that turned everything into treasure, well, they don't have any food. I, to I totally see what you're saying, and I get where you're going. That uh, basically supply and demand. That which is, uh, is, uh, is less plentiful is, has a higher value to it. So you have more, because of post-industrial economy, you have more people going to college now, you have more people obtaining a bachelor's degree, more jobs where it's required, the value of that bachelor's decrease. Having a bachelor's degree today becomes the equivalent of what a high school diploma was 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, pretty much. And now this isn't to say, oh, we need to drastically scale back college students to the point of of it being worth the same school. Then we're well, on the point of no return with that. With the, how the economy is structured now, with a knowledge-based slash service-based economy, you can't do that, or it can't be done. In my view, what is a better approach is having a balance of things, because while you have so many people getting Bachelor of Arts in various disciplines, that's less people who are learning how to farm with and within a few generations, if we don't have enough people who know how to do agriculture inside and out, and I'm not talking about those who study ag science in college, I'm talking about people who learn from farmers who've done it for years. But we're no longer, I mean, of course, food is a necessity, but we're no longer in a, an agrarian agricultural economy. That dominated in the 1800s, and even before that, and then. In the 20th century, you have the rise of the industrial economy, and now we're in the post-industrial economy. So that that 
Stanley Farming shrinks, has shrunk, right. and uh, even more so, in the, in the industrial economy has shrunk, and, and that's what happens is you can't maintain an equilibrium. These types of cycles, it's always a transplant. It is a cycle. Um, and I think what you're referring to is a more kind of decentralized, uh, albeit kind of utopian um, style of uh, economy, and it, it, at least with agriculture and those big industries like that, that are not, I guess, service-related, um, those industries have become more centralized. You have fewer and fewer companies owning large swaths of land or large swaths of property rights over certain um, materials. Yeah, and Monsanto feeding the world and people are looking at, they're not really looking closely at what consequences if there are any of their methods and putting seeds together and everything else, that sort of thing. Right, and I, I think that's a. I think we can get into that topic in later episodes because I mean that's that in itself is a massive mm-hmm. industrialized can of worms. I have a sort of completely on the nose because I think we're getting close to winding down, but a completely on the nose question. You talk about elephants in the room. Is UCM in decline? Yes or no? Further predictions will it continue to decline, or can actual repairs <laughs> be made? I think academically, from what I have seen, um, academically it is on the decline. Um, the professors who I've spoken with um, uh, and are, are agree with me in that we're bringing in more and more students who are less interested in focusing on their academics. And what's happening is that professors are getting burned out. They're trying to incorporate and implement these lesson plans, and they're falling on deaf ears. On the other end of the students, um, some students who are coming in who are very, very knowledgeable, and they're leaving. They're leaving UCM because either departments are low turn, uh, low turnout um, types of departments, especially in the math and sciences, and so they go to other universities in order to make sure that they're getting a high quality education that's within their budget. Um, So what we're left with are more and more students who are less academically inclined, and we're producing students who are not competitive with their peers for job openings, and we're ultimately having um, a less a lesser UCM college experience. Uh, I'm not sure what the correct to that is. Uh, I think I don't it, think it can be at this point. I don't think it can I, be I think correct. I think at this point there are a lot of compounding variables that are affecting others. And we just can't seem to put a finger on what is the impetus uh, for the continuation of, of this maelstrom that we've created over the last 10, 15 years. Um, you're mean. You're a meanie for saying those things. That's mean. I, I, I know. There, there are some people who are going to completely disagree with the very notion of what I'm saying. And I respect their opinions. And I, would, I would love I to get don't. their dialogue. I don't. I don't mis- <laughs> if somebody's opinion is not fact-based and they can't acknowledge even... Uh, I guess the, the the harsh truth. No. Well, I mean, there are in some programs. Cases, in those cases. There are some programs at UCM and other institutions that are thriving. The business college at UCM, um, our teacher, our education de- uh, department is doing very Which very well. Been. Yeah, it's, it's always, always been, been, been very well. UCM has always been known for turning out teachers uh, left and right, and and and, and outstanding, uh, outstandingly trained teachers. I think but that's debatable. That's no. The 
the, the question of is it not in the client? Some parts of it are, but I see it more as a bubble. It's getting bigger, it's getting bigger, it's getting very bigger. At some point... You think eventually it's going to go... Pretty much. And there is an opportunity to make things a little bit better, but it's, it's one of those things where it's easier said than done at this point because you have to have Certainly. enough people motivated to do so. One... Have that campus audited again. It needs to happen again, as far as I'm concerned, financially, so that students know where the money's going to at this point. And for another thing, the athletics department needs to be scrutinized. One of the reasons... Hey, now! One of the reasons... That football team is a part of this town! And, and the thing is, that school spending more money on athletics than they need to. That's the, Thank you. That's it's the, like, they're not the size of school they need to be in order to be spending that much money. One of the things that happened with Aaron Pulewski was he, his contract was not renewed, I'm suspecting, for a couple of reasons. One, his wife took on a sexual harassment case for a few Jane Doe's from Warrensburg High School, in which the coach uh, acted inappropriately, which I have it on good authority that there's a the truth to that, because they transferred to other schools, one of which I graduated from. Um, but that was part of it. And the other part was the attempt of reining in the athletics department, because there were fees that were increased one year one semester, and they still apparently overspent. And so, finally... He is, that on, is that on record? That he, that he was trying to do that? He was trying to rein in the athletics department? Uh, there was, from what I have been informed of, there was an issue... Is it, is it on record, though? Because I, 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 what I see with the athletics department is it, it, it's almost like a third rail. It's just like, okay, if we all... If the whole idea of ever since the Great Recession of 2007-2008, we have to tighten our belts. We have to make cuts here, here and there. Well, why is it that those cuts aren't sort of unilateral when it can't? It seems like the athletics department does not have to sacrifice, and their stuff remains untouched. One of the primary reasons why it's untouched, if you're familiar with, like, um, the... Uh, I think forget there's there's an actual calling group on campus that calls um, former um, students. Um, I mean former students. I mean people who've already graduated. Alumni. And they yeah they ask for financial contributions. And a lot of those financial people will have the ability when they're uh, when they're approached to give a financial contribution to UCM to earmark it for a specific program. Now people who are like in the math and sciences who probably transferred to Missouri State or mm-hmm. Mizzou or UMKC, yeah, they're probably not going to give a darn <laughs> dime back to UCM, um, but the athletes who graduated from mm-hmm. here, they can specifically earmark their funds for the, the um, sports programs of their choice. And I, and I think then you're looking at a business model, and like I said, I would have more respect for those at the university and those who are the mouthpiece of this university, if they just said, this is business, we leave that alone because they're paying our bills. 
Right. But who's, who's going to say that, you know? I mean, that's... No, no, why I could never work PR is because I couldn't spin that much <laughs> of a lie. Right. Um, I wouldn't want to. I'd rather pop a cyanide pill and, than work and, in PR. And you don't come off as the type that, that cares for the whole business of this thing called damage control either, which is one of the primary tenets of public relations, which, well, guess what? The current president, you, you pointed out, Mitchell... He's, he has a public relations he, he, back PR guy. I was talking to uh, uh, some time ago. He's since graduated. A staff member of the Neil Skinner, who I was actually cool with and actually liked. And he, I sat down. He sat down with Ambrose. And I, this is like whenever he first came in. I'm like, well, what's what's the guy like? I mean, what's the deal with him? He just said one sentence. He's a PR guy. I think. I, I think. I think right now, what what we're seeing UCM is a shift towards economics um, because UCM, on average, so and you're talking about as, a, of, as far as the business end of things, as far as like right. that, that college, it's, it's more focused on. I mean, colleges need to make sure that they're able to pay the bills. I get it. And you're a business model or like business major, like a business model, oh, like right. one focused primarily on getting more and more students to attend UCM for the purposes of having additional revenue to do things on campus, um, not one that's academically focused that pressure students to become, um, uh, to become, what's the phrase I'm looking for, published in their fields. Or, well, or just a well-rounded intellect. Right. Um, and there, there was some talk about eliminating gen eds, or at least curtailing the amount of gen ed uh, credit hours that students were forced to take. I'm not sure what the direction um, of that conversation uh, I'm not sure about the, the current talk in that conversation, but what's happening is that there are there are monumental shifts happening right now at UCM. Some can see it, and the vast majority don't. Why? All right. Why is it? Who is it that doesn't see it, and why? Who well, is it that thinks majority, everything is fine? The here? vast majority of UCM students, let, let's be clear here, are not privy to the information that is is being discussed. I mean, I've I've had to. Ask professors straight up what their opinions were about the direction of UCM, and only then were they able to give me information about the direction that UCM and other institutions are taking. And um, individual who I won't name on the air that have had a conversation with, they actually worked in one of the offices on campus. Weren't you talked about the direction of Gen Eds? Um, if what I was told was correct, um, a number of professors put their foot down and said, "Absolutely not." A lot, some did. Yeah, I did. I did a story on it. I know. I, I've got an actual record of who who said no and who said yes. Um, are you willing to? Well, I have. It's. I. I. I found the document on my hard drive to look it up. It was back in. I want to say spring of 2012. So it's been some time since I touched that story. But I can go back and, and look at it. Because, like, if it weren't for the... Yeah, we, we all complain about Gen Eds and the real reason being money and all that, but if it weren't for Gen Eds, I wouldn't have minded in religious studies. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have taken a particular class just to meet Gen Eds. Well, I would have into a minor program that expanded my horizons. One of, one of my most uh, enjoyable... I mean, because I can see the validity of what was cut in the Gen Ed, and it was just minor and, and in the sciences. 
but one of my most enjoyable classes that I took was a gen ed, was the gen ed biology. You know, it was my, it was my freshman year, and it was enjoyable because it was, it was a constant influx of new information, and I got a B in the class. So it, it, it was kind of like uh, uh, an illustration to me that I can do this. I can roll with subjects I'm unfamiliar with. And, and I'm going to be honest. I went to college because I had no other direction in life. I had no ambition for anything. But I was fortunate enough to meet the right kind of people that kind of got me to the point of actually finding some sort of direction, finding some sort of identity. I've had some pumps along the way, ran into crowds that probably I shouldn't have tried to be a part of, but that was more towards the end of my college career. And and eventually I just went off on my own direction. Yeah. Um, I, I'm looking at it just in terms of a professor um, level. If you have fewer and fewer genetic classes that are required for UCM students. That ultimately means fewer and fewer class times that are able to be allocated to UCM professors in order to maintain their contracts. And if they're not able to maintain their contracts, if their contracts do get renewed and it's shown that they either either the department doesn't have the classes for them to teach or that they just don't have a whole lot of options to teach, period, then those professors seek employment elsewhere. So we're losing quality professors by sh by shifting um, uh, away from those genetics. Now, genetics, we've been in genetic classes before. Sometimes they're completely utter waste of time. Yeah, I get it. Um, other times, you know, like, like you all have said, they allow for you to experiment with different topics, engage on a different level, and ultimately become a better person student because of it. That, cl that class partially uh, rekindled my interest in the sciences. Right. Which I'm not extremely proficient at, but just like it created a hunger for more knowledge. Right. And if people are not wanting to go through general education courses, then college is not a place to be. They should go. Um, they should go to a trade school for a particular industry. That's me. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> well, we better get to wrapping this up. Um, I noticed that one of the things that people waste money on is electronics from financial aid. They spend a lot of money on electronics and software that they may never ever use again. Next week, we'll go over an operating system that you can obtain free of charge, and it's not illegal to share it. You can make as many copies as you want and say, hey, put it on your computer if you want. You can run it off a CD. Um, and everything else, and it comes with everything you need, especially if you're a history major, English writing major, something that's not specialized, that requires Apple's platform and everything else, or Windows, or whatever. So, um, If you want to leave feedback on this episode, uh, feel free to dial our call-in number at 660-474-0345. Or come to the next report.com, visit our Facebook fan page, Google Plus page, it's all listed at the top of the website. I'm Thomas. I'm Mitchell Brown. And I'm Zach Dobson. Entertain yourself, educate yourself, empower yourself, and we'll see you next week. Woo!
Thanks for listening to our podcast. The intro music to this episode is from J.T. Bruce's Plunge into Hyperreality, a part of the album Dreamer's Paradox, available on Gemendo.com under Creative Commons. Feel free to check us out on TheNextReport.com, where we have show notes for each episode, discussion forums, our digital magazine, and more. We are on Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or Tumblr, all linked at the top of our website. Want to leave us feedback? Follow us on the social networks that are linked at the top of our website, or call into the show at 660-474-0345. Leave a message, and your voice may be heard on an upcoming episode of the podcast. Again, thanks for checking out the podcast itself and our website. It's listeners like you and people like you that keep us going. Thank you so much.